Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Davina, and thank you so much for being here today. Today, my guest is Jason LaRocca, and Jason is a producer, an engineer, and a scoring mixer who works on music for film and television and video games as well. He's mixed music for motion pictures such as Bad Boys for Life, Godzilla, King of Monsters, Coming to America 2. He's worked on video games such as Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, and Cyberpunk 2077. So he's done a lot of work work in this industry and a lot of really big work that I'm sure you've heard as well. So um, I think you're going to find this interview really interesting because it's a bit of a break from our normal conversation about working with bands. This is adding an extra element of working on songs to picture. And I think that this has a lot of different challenges that we often don't think about when we're working on just recording a band, right? So I think you're going to find this interview really interesting and get a really cool insight as to what goes on behind the scenes of some of your favorite movies and video games and TV shows. So let's not waste any more time. Let's just jump right into the interview. This is my interview with Jason LaRocca. Jason LaRocca, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you doing, man? I'm good, Mike. How are you doing? Doing great. For people who might not know your background, can you give us a little bit of your story on how you got into music and ultimately to where you are now? Yeah. I mean, currently, um, I sort of hold a couple of different titles, but, uh, you know, I'm basically a score producer and, uh, recording and mixing engineer, um, which kind of, I guess, covers everything from, uh, you know, working with composers who are doing a film score to figure out sometimes some of the sonics and, and vocabulary of, of the way the score should sound and, and how it should work in, in the film to recording the orchestra, recording the bands, recording the vocalists, recording, you know, all the production as far as getting it done on the back end once everything is approved by all the producers and then mixing it and mixing it in 5.1 or in 7.1 or something else. Um, and, and then delivering it to usually another mixer, the dubbing mixer, somebody who's mixing that then with dialogue and all that sort of thing. But primarily I'm focused on the music post-production side of, of film, TV, video games, and commercials. And, and how did I get here? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How did you get there? (laughs) I started out as a guitar player and, you know, in my early teens, I was, um, really, I think, uh, Metallica was probably one of the first, you know, things that made me wanted to really like get into playing guitar, like really seriously. Um, but I, you know, my dad had a guitar when I was, when I was young and a toddler and, uh, you know, when I was young he taught me how to play uh you know some rolling stones tunes and stuff like that so i knew a little bit but i wasn't like you know really gung-ho on on being a musician until really my early teens and i was more or less self-taught i kind of 
just figured out how to, I got a couple lessons in the beginning, but you know, when guitar tablatures came out and that was like a big thing, you know, in the early nineties, I was like, this is fantastic. I can learn anything. I don't have to know how to read music. Um, so, you know, that eventually that world left, led me to, uh, starting some bands and a lot of them broke up after short periods of time, but, but one of them kind of stuck and, ended up getting signed uh, to a punk label and that band was called the Briggs and we toured pretty much full time since we started in like 2004. Um, we went on tour with Floggy Molly and we did just like five tours with them, like almost the entire year we were on tour with this band in, in 2004 and 2005. And then that kind of led to all the various punk avenues we did warp tour um you know toured with dropkick murphy's toured with bad religion you know played leeds and reading festival with rage against the machine and just started doing all that and and you know making records with like paul coldry and you know uh, joe gittleman from the boss tones and we started to you know get into producing our own records well, well they were producing them but i was engineering them like I, they just sort of said you know well what do you want to either engineer or mix them so paul was mixing some of our stuff i was recording some of our stuff and i had like a little home studio so we you know that that's kind of where <clears throat> i kind of cut my teeth on on just sort of figuring out i because i wasn't i didn't go to school you know i just was in bands and so it was a lot of just sort of like pulling myself up by my own bootstraps to figure it out with our whatever means we had home studio gear and and some you know professional studios like paul coldry studio and stuff like that but you know it was kind of a mix and uh, a mix of of just sort of gleaning from guys like him and and learning my own things in the kitchen and figuring out what works and doesn't work over a long period of time and i wasn't like seriously considering myself an engineer or mixer so i was really just doing it with the goal in mind that i wanted everything to sound like you know tom lord algae or chris lord algae you know it was like that was like those were those guys were kind of like my heroes and i was just trying to do what because i didn't have proper training so i just was doing it with my ear really um, and that's kind of where a lot of that started for me. And then eventually I got a job, but when I was in the punk band, when I wasn't on tour, I was working in a studio for a film composer, uh, named Mark Isham. And that's where I started to learn the post worlds and get into film scoring and, and, you know, film music was, was working in his studio and, and he had a euphonics, uh, CS 3000. And that was had brand new at the time uh in 1997 i think it was and and nobody knew how to use it because it was such a strange console it wasn't like an old school analog console where everything's just laid out you know on channel strips and you see it all it had like a center section with like attention keys and you know stuff like that that now is of course commonplace and we're used to in in digital consoles but it was kind of the first of that sort of style and um and then i started just going i you know i was i'll learn this console i'll figure it out and then that was kind of where i started to get uh my studio chops in there he had an engineer by the name of steve krause at the time who i i learned a lot of stuff from he was he was an old um you know jazz engineer 
and uh, did a lot of jazz records and then got into film scoring. And so I learned a lot of stuff from him and, um, stop me if I'm boring you. No, it's all good, man. This is interesting story. This is just my, uh, my, my, my quick, my quick story. If it's hopefully sounding quick enough, but yeah, no, he was, he was great. I learned a lot from him. We were mixing on like MX 80 tape at the time and D 88s. So we were transitioning from that to pro tools, but it wasn't really, you know, it didn't happen overnight, but there was, there was a very quick, it did happen fairly quickly. Like people were starting to drop the tape thing pretty quick. Like I, I only did a number, like four or five projects on two inch tape. And then we pretty much ditched it after that. Um, but we were mixing on a combination of, of MX 80 and D 88. So we had to, you know, sync all these things together with time code. And that's of course was a complete nightmare. We had to <laughs> sync the console as well. Cause the console was running automation. So we had the console D88 tapes and the MX80. Oh, and three quarter inch videotape because nothing was digitized on the video either. So we had four tape machines that all had to be sunk together. And that was probably what we spent most of the time doing every day was making sure <laughs> everything stayed in sync. And this for you, you know, millennials, you know, you'll just, you should really thank your lucky stars. You don't have to deal with that stuff because it was just, you know, the, the process of, of making music shouldn't get bogged down into technical uh you know snarls of like just things not working for no good reason and you know sync machines and stuff like that are like i'm so glad that is i don't have a single synchronization box in this studio <laughs> it's and, amazing you know, isn't I'm it i'm very thankful <laughs> yeah it's it's amazing we've got video going we've got thousands of tracks going we've got every plugin known to man everything we could possibly want every format we could possibly want it's pretty much all in one computer so that was but at the same time that was kind of fun to have that experience and to you know to have see the transition into pro tools where we pretty much after three or four years of my being in the studio there uh we were basically done with mx80 we were done with two inch tape and pretty much done with d88s except for things we needed to do recalls on from maybe a year or two earlier but we were transitioning pretty quickly into pro tools and of course that was before you know auto low latency was sorted out in pro tools so there was a lot of delay compensation issues a lot of things that of course took us all you know took avid a while to figure out you know how to how to get right but but oh we had sound designer that was before it was pro tools it was it was sound designer so we had sound designer and we would do you know sampling in there and and some sound design and stuff like that but it was so i mean there was like an eq and a compressor and like i think those were like the two plugins you had it was yeah it was and it cost like ten thousand dollars for the one two channel in two channel out you know sound designer cart no it's funny like i like i mentioned to you at the beginning of this like i i had a little bit of experience at audio post and i found that working in audio post makes you so much better of a pro tools engineer because you go into like all sorts of menus that you would never look at if you're just working on music but uh yeah like when especially when you're trying to sync things and all that stuff it's like you go deep into pro tools so to have that experience of kind of seeing it from the ground level and like working through all those variations of pro tools you know i, I imagine that like you're just a Pro Tools wizard at this point. <laughs> well, you know, back in the day, it was like if you made if you made the 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 error of of making a tape 
D88 or a two-inch tape with the wrong time code on it, you were completely screwed. You know, like if you had the wrong time code on it and you already recorded something and then you needed to sync it with another machine and it was running at a different time code rate, there you had to have a box that could do that and convert the time code to something else and get it into sync. But if you did it wrong and you didn't have something to help you, you know, convert it all, you were screwed. And now it's like in Pro Tools, you could just change the menu to 23976 to 24 frames. It's like, it doesn't, you, you, there are no errors that you could really back yourself into a corner with as easily. But yeah, no, it was, it was a good, it was a good little history to have. And I'm glad to not be doing anything with tape anymore, but it was, it was nice to kind of be on in that world for a couple of years and at least just see it and be part of it and actually realize that I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> Cause some people think they want to work on tape. They like the, the mystique of it and, and the sort of, you know, the nostalgia of it. And, and then a lot of the times people work on it and realize that they just don't actually like it as much as working in pro tools. I really think a lot of people who, had that history and worked and, and on tape are so happy to, to not have to deal with it anymore. Well, I want to, I want to rewind a little bit. So you had talked about kind of starting getting, getting your start being in bands and touring around. And then uh, you'd mentioned that you started working with these bigger producers and, and that they kind of just threw you into the three to the fire and was like, Hey, do you want to record or mix this kind of thing? So let's, let's talk about like, how did you get that experience of, or like, where did you start with the recording side of it? Cause I can't imagine that a bigger producer is just going to throw someone who has no experience at this to the fire, right? Like you're, you probably had to have had a little bit of experience before you got into that role. I was doing a lot of demos for our bands. So we were just recording stuff at home and we didn't have pro tools because pro tools wasn't available yet in like a home studio form. So I had, um, I had a 16 track tape machine, an E16, Fostex E16. And we recorded a bunch of demos on that. We recorded other bands on that. Uh, a lot of bands in LA were kind of <laughs> coming to our house and, and we would record, you know, three song EPs and stuff like that. And, you know, cause we were just, there was no, it wasn't easy to get into studios. Like it was really expensive, you know, to get into a studio for a couple of days to record. And then we had to be in a studio also to mix it. So I had the crazy idea that I could do all that myself and, and save the money and just spend a little bit on some gear and then learn how to use it. So we did that, you know, early on with like, bands that you know we thought were great that weren't of course and i made tons of mistakes i did everything wrong you know using all the wrong microphones using tons of you know all crappy gear stuff that was breaking not working and just you know we had like three or four different bands and and iterations of kind of the same band and i was just honestly i was just learning a lot of that stuff myself uh by just making mistakes and so I just was determined to kind of figure it out really, you know? And so I was 16, you know, spent a little bit of, I earned a little bit of money working for the summer and bought some gear. And there was, you remember the, uh, Mackie 2408 console. I bought one of those, <laughs> which was like basically an entire summer of working for my dad. And, uh, and that kind of changed things a lot was having that console. Cause I had the tape machine in that console and then I could sort of mix, you know, we had, had EQ, we had, you know, uh, 
could we all would ride the faders there's no automation on it but my brother and i would do you know sort of manual automation as the song was going and i really didn't not wasn't really until we got signed and started working with guys like paul coldry and stuff like that that i i got into getting to sort of learn from watching some of these guys so um it was really just figuring it like a lot of it was just figuring it out by myself like completely self-taught i had like the tascam four track tape machine when i was 14 and learned that if you you know turn the tape over and recorded your guitar solo and then flipped it over again you'd have a cool reverse guitar solo like george harrison and you know that was just stupid little things of sort of stacked up on top of each other that i learned and then eventually you know found that some of the things i learned by myself were things that my heroes did or or said were valid and and cool and so and then i would learn more from them like paul was just great i would just watch paul coldry and and he gets these incredible guitar sounds you know and just saw how he'd sit there with the mics and he'd get them just phase aligned right and you know and use his little flashlight to get it right in the right spot and stuff and i was like oh wow that's cool and i would just copy it you know i'd just be like oh well that's what he's doing and i love that way that sounds so i would just do exactly that and eventually guys were like well do you want to record and we'll mix it and so you know that was kind of how it it's i was just i was just i had my studio so people were like oh well let's let's try it out let's use it let's see what happens so if it was a success it would be great and we'd keep going if it wasn't somebody would would take over for me and and you know it wouldn't be a big deal a couple of days lost but it, it kind of worked out and i just kind of kept doing more and more and more and then that's just kind of where it just a self-taught kind of crazy idea turned into you know an actual professional career basically yeah i think that that's like one of the fun things about when you're first getting started with this, I mean, it could be either fun or extremely frustrating, it, like this whole process of trial and error and just figuring it out. But um, I think that it definitely challenges you and you you learn kind of the happy mistakes that work and and the ones that suck and that, you know, you have to go back and redo things. And, you know, um, and I also love the fact that, you know, you said you're kind of you just kind of have this like punk rock mentality of just like, let's just do it. Let's see what happens. And like, let's go from there. Right. And I think that I'm, I'm curious to know you know, getting a start in punk rock music where there really isn't like a lot of rules, let's say, when it comes to like following as opposed, you know, musically or recording wise, there's not a lot of rules there. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. I imagine that transitioning into the world of uh, audio post was a kind of like complete opposite, like 180, because like there are a lot more rules imposed in there and there's a lot more structure to what you're doing. So what was that transition like for you? It was difficult, actually, because I, I kind of felt like, you know, I knew everything and, you know, all my my energy and instincts were going to get me everywhere. And it didn't. And you're right. There's a lot of there's a lot of structure to it, to um, post. And there's well, there's the technical side that is that is the structure. And there is the creative side where there are certain you know, there are no rules to some degree. And I try and stay in some of that mentality as much as I can, that there, there is a sort of creative aspect to this that is like ever, ever changing, ever evolving, ever growing. 
And then there are certain things that kind of just stay as rules, which I eventually learned and learned which ones, which of those rules kind of had to really be stuck to and which ones didn't. But, um, I really, I honestly, I try and consider myself much more of a creative person than a technical person. I am a technical person and I obviously as an engineer, you know, I, I love that stuff and I love the technical side, but, um, my, I think where I thrive is more in the possibility of things, you know, what, what could we try that's weird and different? Like I have, um, I have modular gear, uh, that I love and, and it's great for writing and stuff like that, but I like to use it in mixing and I like to actually put sounds through the modular equipment and make uh, a layer of a sound that I'll mangle and distort and make it granular and weird. And then I'll put that layer in a different set of speakers. So I'll have the, I'll have the original sound. Maybe it's a synth, right? Like a pad. And I'll put that in the normal stereo field in the front left, right speakers. And then I'll pass it through the modular equipment and I'll make a weird mangled version of it. And I'll put that in the side surround speakers. And then I'll put that into a delay and put that into the rear surround speakers and create six channels from what used to be two channels. And like, that's not normally something we do in mixing, especially in the, in the audio post side. But I think that it's kind of an extension of, of the creative process of what the composers are doing and what the producers are trying to do with the film. Sometimes it really works, you know, to do, um, creative stuff that is not necessarily part of my job description, but that's where I feel like I, I lend some some things to the table that are not necessarily things that other guys do and think of because I'm more of a creative. Yeah, that, that I mean that's a really cool way of looking at it too. Like you have you're not just working with the stereo, you know, left and right that most people are in audio. Like you have these 7.1 systems, like you can put sounds anywhere. And so that that does open up a lot of creative possibilities and uh you know, I imagine that that in itself is a challenge, kind of deciding what's going to go where. And, <laughs> you know, I'd love, to, yeah. I'd love to talk to you about that and kind of get a sense of, you know, how you decide what's going to go where and make those kind of decisions. Well, one one thing that's interesting is that because of the pan since the pandemic, I mean, really, actually, since before, but really be since the pandemic has been even more so that that nobody really has come to the studio here in a while. And I've been doing a lot of my mixing remotely with clients for approvals. And they usually only hear my stereo fold down mixes of my surround mixes. And so, you know, a lot of the guys that I've mixed for over the last 13 to 14 months haven't even heard my surround mixes, <laughs> you know, uh, until they've uh, either heard it you know, on, on Blu-ray or gone to see it in the theaters, which are just now opening up. So point of that is one that it's kind of interesting because, you know, of course that's the biggest part of what I'm doing is, you know, I'm, if I'm mixing in surround, you really need to hear it that way. It's, it's a really unique uh, thing that doesn't fully translate to stereo, but having said that it does need to translate to stereo. So at the end of the day, it does still kind of boil down to, a a an album just like anything else like it's got to sound good in stereo and um so i've really kind of 
uh, been working a lot in stereo, even though I start and surround, I actually go down into stereo pretty quick because I, and I like it to sound good there. And I know that that's how I'm going to get, uh, critiqued, you know, by the clients. So I make decisions. I make them quickly. I generally don't do too much crazy stuff in the back unless it's a, a moment like where maybe there's a slow motion shot where you know, somebody's in a car and the car is moving in slow motion and you get this sort of suspension of time. We'll do things like that with music where we'll start to spin things around the room and we'll really take that moment and, t and, and make it a music thing. And then that the focus is on the music elements. But generally when we're just driving the, the film and we're driving the picture, a lot of it's just, we're here in the front we're we're basically music but we're surrounding in the back with with great reverbs and delays and and microphones and stuff like that but you know once i get that sound i go right into stereo and i work in stereo quite a bit so um i go back and forth you know it isn't it isn't just like oh shit you know let's focus on this surround sound for the next three hours, I pretty much make some decisions pretty quickly. I leave it up. A lot of the times it's fairly static. And then I go right into stereo mode. Cause a lot of the work for me is just like working on albums. It's like getting the kick drums, right. Getting the low end, right. Which I know you like to talk about low end and, and that sort of thing, which is a fun conversation actually. And, and a lot of those basic focuses are are still where I put a lot of my work, you know, it's getting the low end, right. Getting the, the, the harmonic content, right. You know, how much distortion, how little distortion, how much do we want to open this thing up and width. So those things, which were my focus when working on records are still kind of a lot of the time consumption for me and surround. It isn't like I'm sitting there thinking about just these speakers back here the whole time it's it's a lot of it still is is kind of like what we're all used to you know yeah it's interesting like yeah i, th I think that I, I i've only mixed around like a handful of times and i always found that whenever i was working on music specifically like you have this you have these options now so you're like well what can i put back there like your, your brain's like how do i utilize all this but it's very easy to overdo it and to ruin your stereo mix like you're saying right so you know you have to be a little more um I guess conservative with like where you're throwing things sometimes, you know, but, um, but yeah, so it's, it's interesting to hear a kind of your perspective on it. So it sounds like you're putting more like reverbs and that kind of stuff more. It's more atmospheric stuff in the back, as opposed to like an element to like, a, or like a specific instrument. Say you're doing a giant action cue and it's like tons of drums. It's tons of driving guitars. It's tons of driving strings and, and giant brass and that sort of thing. You know, I, I think about like, what, what is it we want this to do? If you're sitting here and you're watching this film, what's going to give this the impact we want? And usually for me, that means the perspective is largely focused in the front, but that we've got a lot of support in the back speakers and, and, and in the sub as well the the lfe channel just enough where we feel like this thing really is jumping off of the screen and it's really just larger than life because that's what we want it to be we want it to be larger than life but we don't want is going oh that sounds like there's a horn player over there 
like, and your ear is getting distracted by, whoa, oh shoot, you know, there's, there's that guy over there. And now suddenly we're not thinking about the impact of it as a whole. We're thinking of something very individual. And so that's the thing I don't want as a listener and as a mixer when I'm mixing in surround is to suddenly make something become very focused to the point where you can't, you're just distracted by it. So as long as, as long as you're not distracted by what's going on back there, you could, there are no rules. I just think that it's got to always feel like what is it doing as a whole? And are you just listening to it and experiencing it emotionally and not going, oh, tricks, 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 and just like being distracted by so many tricks. Cause then you're not really listening to it and experiencing it. You're, you're, you're being distracted by stuff. So as long as it's not distracting, I think, you know, do whatever you can to just get it to just impact you and make you go, this is an action cue. This is, this is just, dr- this is making me want to get out of my seat and go start scaling buildings. You know what I mean? Like, if I could. <laughs> <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense. And to me, like looking back at a lot of like the movies that I've seen in theaters, it's like when you hear a lot of those musical cues, you kind of feel like you're in like that concert hall watching that orchestra play, you know? So it, it kind of makes sense that there isn't like a lot of these distractions, as you say, like behind you and around you, you know, it's like if you're watching an orchestra play, you're seeing it kind of in front of you and then you're hearing the reverberation from behind you. And, you know, so that makes sense that you would, you would. Well, exactly. Like yeah. Cause, cause there is, there is, there is an experience you can compare that to, which is being in a concert hall and be, you know, when you're at Disney concert hall, it's a, it sounds great. Like it really, like if you're in the middle of the hall, it's just such a great sound. A lot of that focus is when you're seeing the stage, you feel the energy from the stage and then you feel this, extra bit of size all around you and and that's that's it i mean there's that's that's a pure joy you know that is you can't get that from stereo right so so when you're trying to do it in surround you're doing something subtle but it is significant so i you know it's like people think oh well you're just putting reverb in the back like that's all you're doing that's you know it's not to downplay the significance of what that actually has as an impact like because you're you're used to experiencing that in a concert hall when you see an orchestra and you were recreating that synthetically in surround if maybe the orchestra wasn't recorded in in surround or maybe it was and and you have the opportunity now to hear it that way you can put that person right back in that position you know right back by by being in a room or a theater they can be right back in the disney concert hall and so there's a real life experience there that you're recreating that is like if you can do it and you could do it well it really gives an emotional height to people's experience well another thing you mentioned is uh the topic of low end and definitely when it comes to you know films there's there's always that like massive low end and like that massive impact that that's happening. So, so yeah, I'd love to talk to you about that and kind of how you manage your low end and uh, control that, that impact that you're getting off of your subs. Cause, cause when you're in a surround situation, you do have your subs and all like pretty much all the time. So, you know, I'd love to learn a little bit more about that. The low end has been a debate for me since the beginning. I think that's been the biggest problem with my mixes early on. And when I was learning was, I didn't know where the center was for low end and how to figure that out. And 
what I learned over time was that it really does change from, from style to style in terms of uh, what the low end focus should be. But in film music, generally, um, a lot of the time, I feel like I like the low end and I tend to just push it even a little bit more. And when I do that, I have to then think about what I can get rid of in the low end because I'm pushing it more. So, you know, it's maybe a little bit um, similar to sort of like you know, the discussion of hip hop and and where, you know, because if you were trying to push the low end, you can't push it in everything because you've pushed it in everything. That's that's where the problem starts. But if if some things take the focus, what things can then, you know, carve out for that for that space but i love to push the drums um i i'm a big drum lover you know from my rock and punk days so like whenever i hear a kick drum and a backbeat i start to immediately feel like that should just be in the center and should be pushed things that i love for adding low end i tend to add low ender i love that plugin a lot uh in the early days i used low air a lot and that was for whatever reason i've kind of now I'm using low ender a lot, and then I use the uh, pro sub, uh, the you know the Avid uh, uh, low ender plugin. That's really great. I use that for if I'm sending to an LFE, I'll send to that plugin the pro sub, uh, you know, hundred percent wet with the with the twenty to thirty band, you know, turned up so that it's adding a low octave to something. And I'll send into that plugin, and then that goes directly to the LFE channel. So if I want to add low end to a, a hit or an impact, I send it to the LFE, which is basically that plugin with an EQ after it, which is also just rolling off anything above uh, 50 hertz. And that's usually my my LFE chain. Um, but I only use that for impact sounds. Like I don't like if there's a kick drum, I don't usually put that. In the LFE, if I want more low end, I'll just push more low end on the insert side. So, like, I'll put um, uh, BX Subsynth on the insert, which is um, a really great low end plugin for adding an extra octave, and I'll put that on the insert so that it's just low end being added in the stereo field, because I feel like that is another translation thing for like guys who are listening to my mixes in stereo, if you push too much stuff into the LFE, it doesn't translate quite right to stereo. So if you're depending on the LFE channel, the, the low frequency effect channel for all of your low end, you'll have some pretty serious issues when you come down to stereo. So I feel like the way I think of LFE is if I'm not getting what I need to out of the stereo uh, effect of adding low end, then I start to do that as well. But I do what I can just in stereo in terms of adding low end. And then I do that as my next step if I need something to kind of go even further, which is usually only a, a hit or a big uh, accent. So I keep a lot of stuff out of the LFE so that when that thing hits, it just goes whoa and it hits you in the chest. Otherwise, if you're doing it all the time, you don't feel like it doesn't feel exciting anymore because you're just being walloped by LFE the entire song, you know? So I like, yeah, I like to save it for like really cool accent impacts, like the start of, of the cue or 
the middle of it or, you know, it's just certain places where I just go, yeah. And then, and then I'm pretty much just adding low end as inserts on channels. And, and I love to add low end to, you know, kick drums and I use either low ender or BX sub synth for that. And then I use the pro sub for the actual LFE send. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's a strategy at that point. You know, it's not just like making a mix. It's, it's, it's strategy. Um, I'm curious to know too. So a lot of the music that you're making, like you're, I'm assuming, you know, you're recording all this stuff and then you're recording or you're mixing all of the music on its own. So when these songs end up getting placed in with the dialogue and the sound effects, like, are you considering that kind of stuff in your mix when you're working on the music or is that kind of just like someone else's problem? <laughs> no, I definitely consider that a lot. Um, especially when it is, um, underscore and it is under dialogue, but sometimes we're mixing stuff that is songs, you know, like when, when I mixed, um, there was the, the Godzilla song, uh, cover song that I mixed for Godzilla King of Monsters with Serge Tankian. And that was, I mean, that was just literally like a record song. That was just like, there is no dialogue. There is no nothing. It is just the end credits of the film. And here comes this big song. Um, so that's easy. I mean, in terms of, the integration and and thinking about things outside of your mix. But when you're doing f score stuff and it's more under dialogue and there's talking, or if it's a romantic scene, or if it's, if it's hard action, I tend to not care as much because it's, I, it is someone else's problem at that point when it's really hard action. And I just go, let's just go balls to the walls with this and make this just a big giant, massive sounding track like you know bad boys for life was a lot of that stuff it was just like big action sequences and i just was going and just hyping everything um so i didn't think about it much with with some of those scenes but when it's talking and that sort of thing i definitely try and listen to it a few times actually with dialogue because it it, it does need to integrate at the end of the day if you're just not thinking about that you're just going to get pulled down and the music's going to be played pretty quietly. So I try and give it, you know, the best possible, uh, scenario I can. And, and if there are certain things that are in the way, I'll carve them out so that I'm doing some of the work for the dialogue and all that sort of thing so that it has a chance to kind of play up there volume wise with everything else. Sometimes the music starts out loud, then gets quiet for a few seconds and then gets loud again. So there's definite dynamic range in score stuff that is way more extreme and, you know, not normal compared to, uh, you know, an album where like, you know, American idiot is just like, you know, all it's at 10 the whole time. Whereas this is when you're, when you're telling a little bit more of a story in two and a half minutes, there's a lot more ebb and flow with, with the score. And you have to make sure that stuff when it's quiet or is supposed to be quiet, that you're really abiding by that concept and same when it's loud so that you aren't like evening out the dynamics and making it all just sort of one volume. Cause you're just going to end up ruining the curve of the scene. So that's, that's, that's really important actually. Yeah. And I imagine that, you know, when it is an underscore thing and there is going to be that dialogue over top of it from a, a scoring perspective, you're, you're very conscious of that and you're not making the song sound busy at those spots. You know, you're making it pretty, pretty just background, simple, let the dialogue not have any other distractions in the background kind of thing. Absolutely. And sometimes we're writing a song and it isn't, we aren't thinking of the dialogue yet. And it, 
And so once you start thinking about it, you realize, oh, we're just sort of playing through this whole scene and we're not giving it enough of a shape. And so, you know, if we're just like making a tune and realize that it's got to be a little bit more uh, up and down and maybe taking some things out, we'll, we'll go through it after it's been written and put together and go, okay, well, we need to start carving this out a little bit. We need to like take the guitars out for, you know, a couple bars and, and how can we do this musically so that it doesn't sound like we're just chopping them, you know, but how can we give them like an actual way to come out and come back in? And so then you start thinking about orchestration and, and that sort of thing based around what the dialogue is doing and based around what the scene is doing. And, you know, that's sometimes comes after the fact where you just sort of got inspired to write a tune and you've got this great tune, but now it needs shape because you're just kind of playing through the whole scene and you need to respect obviously what what's happening. So, um, so sometimes we do that as we're writing it, or sometimes we do it in the beginning and it's thought of right away, or sometimes it's something we think about after we kind of the, the adrenaline of, of putting the tune together has left us. And we realize we, now we need to do some, some, uh, you know, some respecting <laughs> of everything else going on around it. At what point would you say the music starts when you're doing these kind of major motion pictures? Like, are you, are you writing to dialogue and to picture or are you starting before some of that? Like what, what, at what stage does your role come in? You know, sometimes with like animation films, there's, there's music being done before, you know, there's even anything really to see, you know, there'll just be a couple of uh, static, you know, hand-drawn cards that just change every five seconds. And you get a very rough, very rough idea of what you're writing to. And so you have to kind of drive that a lot and sometimes without much inspiration because you you have to start early and you're doing it before any of the animation is even done um but then that isn't always the case you know sometimes something is well you know some cases you're you're replacing the score that somebody else did and didn't work out so the film is like completely done except for the music <laughs> you know and not only that, but it's like everyone's kind of been used to hearing something for like a year or two. And so now you're kind of, you know, you've got some pretty rigid boundaries as far as like what you can do or what you should do. So it's the equivalent of you know, demoitis. <laughs> yes. Demoitis is a major, major culprit in, um, uh, you know, accelerating gray hair, but, uh, but it's almost worse because you're, you're trying to sync to picture. So it's like, not like you just, you know, make the song different. It's, you have to have very intentional, uh, writing. Sometimes it can help you. And sometimes it, it doesn't, you know, like if you need to make something almost exactly like a demo, but different, that's, that's generally not very easy to do because whatever inspired the person to make that song, you have to recreate that inspiration to some degree. You have to think, well, how do I, how do I get there mentally? You know? Um, but yeah, I mean, my, my role generally, uh, because I have the benefit of, of not having to be involved a lot of the time in some of that early process. I don't, uh, I don't get, get in 
to some of the heartache that comes with the demoitis or with comes with having to write music to literally nothing. But, you know, I have, and it's, yeah, it is, it's a little crazy, but you know, there's everything in between too. There's also the stuff that just, you know, you're writing to really uh, inspirational footage and it all goes great. And no one has any thought as to what it needs to sound like. And what you come up with is fantastic. <laughs> there are those, you know, there are those scenarios too. And, you know, when they happen, you know, we, we relish in them because they don't happen often enough. Fair. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing that I really remember from working in audio post and when I compare it to working on music is that audio post, you have way more tracks to work with and the session files are way longer. It's not like you're mixing a three minute song. Sometimes, you know, like sometimes you're working on a much longer piece. And, and what I found was that workflow is the most important thing as an audio post technician, because it's like you have to work fast and you have to just have your focus and know how to manage to go through like hundreds of tracks sometimes to, and, and get that done quickly, you know, whereas there's people who spend like days working on a punk rock song with 20 tracks, you know, so it's you, workflow is so important. So I was wondering if you can describe your workflow a little bit and how you keep your focus and what you do to work fast. If, if we're thinking about a score, for a movie, it's really kind of a 90 minute song in a way. I mean, it, it is broken up, of course, by a lot of different individual thoughts and ideas musically, but you, you are definitely do there's, there's a common thread through it usually. And, and it is almost like you're thinking about, well, how is this first song affecting the last song and how, how do we, get through this whole thing and, and sort of make it feel like it has some continuity to it because a lot of the time with a 90 minute soundtrack that can sometimes be like 50 different songs you know and a lot of the time they have some of the same sonic palette so so the workflow and template is crucial because once you build the first sound and you get it right you kind of want to carry that through all of them and and get them all to kind of have that same magic so um i always start with a template that kind of carries from the last project i do usually so like if i just did a film in 5.1 and i'm doing another film in 5.1 i'll use that same template make the changes i need to in it in terms of routing and layout but i'll use that as my starting point so um so that i've got usually like 15 to 18 individual stems that get printed from my multi-track so that it's a single fader for the low percussion and it's a single fader for the high percussion uh, as well as electronic percussion pads uh, arpeggiating synthesizers high ones and also low ones uh, strings brass woodwinds choir uh guitar solos other solos that sort of thing and that's like pretty much the basic layout and it changes from film to film depending on the style and and what's in it musically but that layout um has tons of routing in it you know because every one of those stems that i print has to have its own compression its own bus eq its own uh aux ends for reverbs uh, and its own send for LFE so that 
if you're sending to a reverb from the drums, that's just printing only to the drum stem. And it is not a common reverb for the other elements in, in the sonic palette. So everything has its own reverb. Everything has its own e bus EQ. Everything has its own bus compression so that when I print it, it's printed as if it's a mastered mix through bus compression and EQ, but it's for every individual sound element. A lot of so a lot of that routing and, and um, processing is is already kind of done. A lot of the hard stuff that took weeks and weeks and weeks to sort of get right and and uh, put where it needs to be is is already there. But it changes from film to film so much that it's never it's never what I last started from anyway. You know what I'm saying? The the sonics are always different every time. Even if we try to make it the same it's and move fast, it, it never is. It's always got to be different. But um, so I have, temp yeah, I definitely have templates that I work from. And then we have a whole process for how we build on those templates so that every song that comes in, as it comes in, we have um, track naming that we stick to that is really, really specific so that when the client sends us songs, kick is always called kick snare is always called snare and uh every single individual sound like you know harking angels or something like that some individual pad sounds they always have that same name we track match so that those tracks just lay right on top of uh the tracks that i've built uh from the first two or three songs as i build those track names into my mix template the next two or three songs just match right in and those names fall right into place. So we just import audio. We don't import any other thing. So whenever we get it from the client, we never want automation live in their sessions, plugins live in their sessions. It's all rendered so that all we do is lay the audio on top of my mix template and then we can just start going from there. And you're getting your clients to like do the naming, like change their file names to match your template? Not so much as that as, as when they, when they create a naming convention that they stick to it so that, um, they aren't calling it kick on one, uh, song and then calling it kick high on the next song. And, and that sort of thing where that then things aren't track matching, things aren't the same. And we try and come up with a vocabulary that, that makes it so that all of their sounds that they build for the film fall onto the same track that I've built sonically uh, every song. So that takes a little bit of doing, and it usually takes <clears throat> one or two songs to get it right and into place. But then once we've done that, we can go on with the next 48 songs and have things start to really fall into place and build momentum and it goes faster. But those first two or three, is a lot of back and forth on getting the names where we want them and that sort of thing. But once we built that, it goes so much. I mean, that that's, that's where a lot of the headache can come from is like someone sends you a song and it just has complete 50 completely different track names than the last song. And you're like, I have to start over. I have to completely start over. Like all my routing has to be thrown away. All my EQs and compressors have to be thrown away. So we try and, we try and uh, mitigate that a little bit by coming up with some solutions that will make it more of like a building of momentum off of the first couple of songs. And so, so we do that. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. And I have, I have assistants who help me put all that stuff together so that, 
they're building these things because it's a lot of the stuff is assembly, right? So like a orchestra is recorded in London. Uh, you know, a bunch of the synth tracks are made in LA here, uh, choirs getting recorded in Nashville, you know, so these things come in very modular and like, how do we, you have to get all this stuff into one session. So, so that's a whole other sub level of, of engineering that we have. That's why, why we have multiple rooms here is so that I can have those kinds of assemblies being done. And then I could be mixing in here while that's being put together. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that really just speaks to the power of templates. Cause, cause yeah, if you're getting like hundreds of tracks sent to you and you have to figure out what each of those is and like where that fits in the template and creating the routing, like you're, you'll spend weeks just setting up your template or setting up your session. And then no. So once we, once we build that first one, uh, a lot of it falls into place because that routing will just keep carrying over. And especially with, with recording sessions that are like um, uh, with an orchestra, you pretty much set up an input list, <clears throat> uh, a template, a recording template for that orchestra. And that, that layout doesn't change. Those microphones stay as they are. You don't add microphones or take away microphones depending on the song. You leave that stack of microphones the way it is you hit record, you send the cue for mixing. And then when it comes into my template, it's those same channels in my template as it is in the recording session. And they never change so that every time I get a song, it just keeps matching and matching and matching. And so my sound just kind of builds up and I don't have to redo it because they've changed all their microphones in the room. Like that's insane. Yeah. <laughs> if you did that, you'd never get, you'd never get anything done. For sure. And it, you know, it, it's, it is, a, there's a lot of strategy in this just to, to plan out your sessions and to, to be thinking about how do I work in the most effective way. So having these templates is, is obviously a major part of what you do. So it's, you know, it's super important. I even think in the music side of it too, people should still be working with templates just because, you know, it makes it that much smoother of a process, right? Well, like when you record drums on an album, that's the same drummer. It's the same drum set in the same room. But if you add two microphones on the second day and then you add another two microphones on the third day when you come back to the first day and your channel layout is different because <laughs> because now you've got you've interjected two microphones in the middle of your track layout you're going to now have those two tracks showing up in in a different place on the console because you've you know, it's like, well, where do we put these now? You got to add them at the end of the console. Okay. Well, let's add those four microphones now at the end of the console. Now you've got like stuff kind of all over the place. And it's, you know, that's why you just, you pick it, you got to pick a template in the beginning when you're recording something and stick to it. And then that way, when you go to mix, once you get the first song done, it's the same microphones for the next 10, you know? So, so that's, that, that's way the way we you know learned to make records properly it's like you know especially with punk records it's like you would just set up 10 microphones and then that would be it you do the whole record in that day you just do the whole thing you know and then mixing it is easy because you just put up those channels and that eq and compression you get on the first uh song is going to be the same setting you're going to need on the second song because you, you stayed to the, you stuck to the same microphones and the same layout. So yeah, it's the, it's the same, it's the same thing that, that makes 
building momentum on on record making the same for you know doing scores absolutely you had mentioned earlier that you have multiple rooms at your studio and um I was wondering if you could talk about what that process looks like as far as like that assembly line of kind of taking all those different pieces together and, and mixing everything. Like, are, are you mixing in all those rooms or is like one room dedicated for kind of session prep and ones for mixing or how, how, what does that look like? Actually, we're, we're pretty much mixing in both rooms. I have, uh, this is studio a here, which is where, I, you know, when I first started here, this is, this is a commercial uh, mixing studio, by the way. This is uh, Fab Factory Studios in North Hollywood. And I had, when I moved here, just one room. And I had, uh, you know, Dave Pensado was a neighbor and a couple other really great engineers and producers. And there were no, actually, there were no other rooms available. Then when the pandemic hit, we all got sort of kicked out of our room and our rooms and I had moved home. And when I came back a few months later, things just started getting really busy. And I thought, you know, I think, I think at some point I'm actually going to need two rooms. And I sort of thought, ah, maybe that's a crazy idea. I don't know if that's really true, or maybe I'm just busy now, but then in three months, I'm going to be regretting the fact that I have to pay rent on two different places. But um, what I did was I just started an idea, which was, I basically took my basic mix rig and I cloned it and I got another Mac, uh, 16 core, uh, the new Mac and, and we just cloned it. We, we got the same plugins, got the same HDX layout, which is three HDX cards and, uh, three Octo, uh, UAD cards and a, and a quad, uh, UAD card. That's what my main rig is. And I got a second rig just like it. And what we started to do was test things where, well, what if we took this mix that's approved and put it on this test rig and printed it and will it sound the same and will it be right? So we did a bunch of tests where we do with a print and then bring it into studio A and then A, B it against my print in studio A and does it sound the same? And there was a couple of quirks. There were some things that we had to figure out with a couple of plugins that needed to be the same versions and a couple of things that uh, were just idiosyncrasies with a couple of plugins. And once we got that going, I thought, well, this could be something because now I can mix and I could be printing in the other room. And I said, no, I think we should get another room. And there was nobody in the other rooms because when the pandemic hit, everybody got kicked out. And I was the only one in this building when I moved back in. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll call the owner and I called the owner. I said, well, I think I want another room. Let's try this out. And so I started renting the room behind me, which is the same design as this room, which was also really cool. And we did a whole build out, put the speakers in, put the console in and started seeing how reliable this was to actually go back and forth between the two rooms with starting a mix in here, finishing it in there or printing it in there in studio B or starting a mix in studio B prepping it, assembling it, getting sort of a pre-mix and then bringing it in here to finalize it, polish it, uh, get it right and get the approval from the client and then send it back to B for printing. All this stuff started to work and things got really, really busy at the beginning of this year, as you can imagine, because things were just like, everything just opened up and it just went insane 
And in February, March, April, and May, we had both rooms going about 16 hours a day, seven days a week. And so Studio B primarily was designed to basically print everything that I mix in Studio A. But it can really do anything because it's the same exact uh, system. So we're just doing whatever's needed. So as some as a client calls and says, you know, we need a mix done and they call me last minute and I'm already doing something, we can start a pre-mix in Studio B and bring it in here. All the sounds are the same. Anything that gets done over there with plugins all opens up here. So it it opened up the possibilities for a lot of things and primarily printing and making sure it's completely fail-safe, which did take a little bit of work because, you know, it's like you're opening something on another computer. We have to make sure, obviously, we don't ever update anything in one room without updating it in the other. So that's been one trick of like not having anything get out of hand with updates or changing anything. So I don't buy a lot of plugins. I don't, uh, I don't update a lot because I just, yeah, you like can. I want, <laughs> I, yeah, I just want things to work. And like, that's kind of my main priority. So the fact that they do now, like one thing we, we found was that Gullfoss, uh, you know, the EQ plugin Gullfoss, uh, if you had a different, there's a, a newer version that just came out. And if you have any of the older versions prior to it, uh, it doesn't work. It's not compatible with it. And what, what I mean by that is if you make a setting in the old version and you save that as your template, and then you send it to somebody with Gullfoss, the new version on their computer, and they do an assembly with your template, it blows out all the settings of, of the EQ. So then when it comes back to me, it's all messed up. <laughs> and so we discovered that, of course, that was one of the things we had to fix because we would, I was sending stuff to someone to assemble in the other room and then it was coming back to me all messed up. And I was like, what is going on here? So we've got everything working and it's all great, but it is, uh, it's really exciting. Like it's really kind of opened up the possibilities for me in terms of my workflow, what I can take on. Uh, and also the added benefit that, you know, we don't have to work 24 hours a day in one room, which is what we used to do before I had two rooms was I'd have to have somebody print in the middle of the night while I was sleeping, which is just a terrible way to make anybody have to, you know, make a living doing an assistant job is to print in the middle of the night. It's just, <laughs> it's just, it just kills people. So, so this is much better. And, and it's working out so far and I'm pretty happy with it. That's amazing, man. I love that. I think, I think it's so smart to have a duplicate setup like that because you look at so many other studios where it's like a different console or a different like computer altogether, or di I've even seen different software, you know, and it's like, you can't go back and forth as easily. And like, you are really restricted to the room that you start in and, you know, it, it puts a lot of limitations on you. So to have that duplicate setup definitely offers so much more flexibility. And, you know, obviously from the sounds of it, it's, it's increased your productivity and it's increased the quality of your life or at least the lives of your assistants because, you know, they're, they're not having to do it all overnight every night, you know? So so, you know, I think that that's, that's amazing. The other thing too, is like, there's, there's, there's sometimes recall on things, right? So like, say you finished a project a month ago and someone says, well, we need a change or a fix or a reprint or something like that. 
<laughs> sometimes I'm in the middle of something and I can't do it, but they need it like right away. So that's another thing that's great about having this other room is we can do recalls on things and be able to do a reprint or do a fix or do whatever. And again, not be sort of halted by this, like, oh my gosh, we're in the middle of something. What are we going to do? Uh, so, so there's that added benefit too, which is just, you know, these kinds of things come up. This is what's part of my daily life now, you know, which wasn't really so much of a, of a big problem in the early days and starting out. But now that we have so many projects we're doing continually, those projects that we think finish sometimes come back <laughs> and often they do actually, even, even for, even if just for an hour or sometimes an entire day or sometimes an entire week. And so there's a little bit of a liability in that where like, I, I have to obviously make sure I can provide the client the ability to fix those things or recall something or make a change because the picture changed or whatever and not be like, oh, well, yeah, I can do it, but I, you got to wait a week, you know, or something like that. So anyway, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, I no. It, I was going to say like yeah. that actually, that actually adds to the customer experience as well, which makes you even more of a, a priority for people, right? Like people want to, <laughs> people want someone who's going to actually get the job done for them in the time you know, that they need it, right? You have to just always say yes. You know, it's so I think that's probably the biggest, uh, the biggest lesson I've learned, honestly, I think recently has just been that if you can just keep saying yes and you can keep providing that this sort of, you know, the stars come to you pretty quick, you know, like you, you just find yourself pretty darn busy and, um, of course, you know, we're not in the business of necessarily trying to kill ourselves, but, but I think if you could always make the client happy, that's a great thing. And I like to try and, and keep the clients that I have and keep them happy. And, and the problem that kept coming up recently was just that I had to turn down so much work. And it was, it was really, uh, it was really upsetting because I thought, you know, these guys are friends of mine, a lot of my clients, and I, I like to be able to say yes. I don't like to say no. So, uh, you know, it's part of a, you know, a bit of a pride factor. And just that, you know, if you've built a clientele and you've built a, a client base, it's it's kind of part of your duty to sort of try and keep it, you know. And it's like you spend so much time trying to build that clientele. And then if you get to that point where you now have to shoot them down, it's like you're kind of working backwards yeah. a little, right? <laughs> Working backwards for sure. And so I try and work backwards as little as possible. And and this has been a big part of uh, that effort has been to make it so that I don't have to. And uh, there's a lot of parts of the process that are some more of the technical side or more of the prepping side or, or just, you know, like we're talking about printing, these kinds of things that uh, I have guys that I really trust to be able to do those things. And those are the things a lot of, there was a lot of things I did the entire process myself from beginning to end. And that really limited my time in terms of what else I could do. Because if I'm, if I'm preparing uh, the sessions, I'm editing the sessions, I'm mixing the sessions, I'm going over the sessions with clients and I'm printing the sessions. Uh, there's only so much you could do in a day. I mean, there's really only so much music you can get through in a day when you're doing that and um 
And there's a lot of stuff that I have gotten down to an exact science and have written up as an exact science that I have guys I can trust really well to apply those exactly how I have done them. And now I can, I could do a lot more mixing, you know, I could do a lot more for clients and it's, and it's been really cool. I've been able to do that successfully. That's great. Yeah. I think it's super important that you have to go through like for any business owner, really, it's like you go, you kind of have to see every stage of the process so that you know what the process is. But then there's that point where you realize like, okay, this isn't the best use of my time. My expertise is doing this. So I'm going to focus on that part of it. And instruct people on how to do the other things and and do it to to your taste so yeah it's it sounds like you've really optimized your systems and um yeah that's such an important part of it for sure um i'm curious to know how long does it take you to finish your your mixes (laughs) it's really different depending on what we're doing actually um I've, i've i've spent as much as a couple of weeks on a single song and I've spent as little as, you know, like actually mixing something basically based on the way it sounded when we recorded it, you know, I uh, like, um, like an example of that would be, uh, we were doing, we were doing some, uh, some jingles for, um, for a TV show that was all just a live band and it was, we were recording at Capitol and basically the recording was the mix. I was trying to, <clears throat> you know, do my best impression of, of Al Schmidt, you know, where we were just, we were just trying to capture the sound basically right then and there. And I, I don't think we really did much on the mix. I think we pretty much played it back or there might've been an edit or something like that. And, and then we printed it. Um, and then, you know, like this, this song that's, um, that we did for, for Godzilla King of Monsters, we spent a couple of weeks on that. Now, part of that was, wasn't just mixing. There was also a lot being added to the song. We had, um, there was, there was chanting, there was, uh, there was giant Tycho sessions that were being recorded for this song. There was orchestra, there was choir. There was a whole band that I had recorded for the song. And, and then of course, Serge Tankian's vocals and all. So we had like stuff kind of came in in layers. So we had, we had recorded the band and I started mixing that. Then the orchestra got recorded and then we started mixing that in. Then we got the chants. We started mixing that in. Then the Tycho's and we had Serge's vocal, but then Serge wanted to redo the vocal. So we redid that. And, you know, it's like, once we were, once all was said and done, we probably spent two, two and a half weeks mixing the song. Um, you know that, but I know there's hip hop guys that do that too. I mean, they'll spend sometimes a month quote unquote mixing a song, you know what I mean? Just because they, they want to add a drop or they want to, you know, some guy wants to change a vocal line or something like that. You know, how do you find you, like, how do you keep your objectivity with your mix because if you've heard a song for two two weeks and you're mixing it like kind of constantly and and you're adding new elements to it too i imagine that it's kind of constantly making you rejig your your approach to it how do i approach it i mean i would probably approach a mix differently depending on on like like with a rock song i get really into the drums and that's like one of the first things i like to i like to get into it's just getting the like the old school just sort of chris lord algae thing of just like turn up turn 
turn on the kick, turn on the snare, like do that sort of thing. And, um, so when it's a rock thing, that's how I start, you know, I just, and I, I, I usually just play the track once without doing anything and just sort of hear what it is, you know? And, and, uh, you know, like if it's, if it's a jazz thing, um, you know, what's the rhythm section doing, getting the rhythm section, right. And then getting the vocal on top of that or something like that, or, or if it's a choral thing and it's, and it's led by choir, just muting everything, but, but the, but the room mics on the choir and starting there. So it's, it's, I guess, different for, for different, different things. But, um, if there's ever drums, I always start with the drums, <laughs> you know, in general, I, I like to start with the drums. I think that's, that's kind of a good play. That's kind of what I learned when I started mixing was like starting with the kick, which is sort of, I guess, a dated thing. Now I kind of feel like when people like say like, yo man, we start with the kick. It's like, usually, you know, you're, you started mixing like in the eighties or the nineties, usually if <laughs> that's the first thing you start with, but I don't know. I still feel like that's, it's valid for me. Yeah, totally. I, I'm, I'm the same yeah. way. I always start off with the drums, yeah. maybe because I'm a drummer. So I'm biased or something like that. Oh, or, there you go. Right. But <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. What is that kit? I see you got a kit. There. Oh, I got like an old, old Roland V drum kit. It's, oh, yeah? it's not that great to be honest. <laughs> like it's, oh, it's really? a great MIDI, that, great MIDI kit. Really? That, that's more. Those have pretty good drum sounds, don't they? Yeah. That's some, some of them are pretty decent. Yeah, that's a. I mean, there's so many crazy drum sets now. These electronic drum sets sound incredible. But I remember that one was was really actually quite good when it had all the 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 multi uh, sensitive zones and stuff like that. Yeah, the the electronic drums. I mean, they're definitely like I, I live in a condo, so I can't really make a lot of noise and play my real drums here without driving my neighbors nuts. So like for me, I had to get something to practice with. But you know, I, I obviously go to the studio when I need to record loud drums and you know not piss off the neighbors mm -hmm. but <laughs> mm -hmm. but yeah. yeah but 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 definitely having a kit like that they're they're helpful they're fun they're they're cool for like composing and just like writing down like getting quick ideas done and not having to mic up everything and do all that kind of stuff right so i mean i'm sure you're you're very familiar with that although it's it sounds like you're doing a lot more live instrumentation than you are uh program stuff yeah i mean it's honestly it's a pretty big mix there's there's definitely things that stay pretty in the box as far as the drums go these days but um, you know, every once in a while it's, it's a live kit or a live ensemble of drums, but this is all drum stuff sounds so good these days. Like just, just fantastic. Um, but, uh, one of the things I was going to say too, is that, um, uh, were you asking a mix approach in terms of mix approach on style or on just in general? I was just, I was asking more along the lines of, you'd mentioned that you've done mixes that have taken you two weeks and that you kind of, you're getting different elements set at different times. So I kind of imagine that maybe kind of almost like demo whitest. It's like, once you've started that mix, you kind of have a, an image of what that song sounds like. And then as you're adding new elements, you're probably having to refresh that vision and, you know, kind of maybe start fresh. Like, so I was wondering like how you keep that fresh, outlook on your mix as opposed to kind of being stuck in that demo edit headspace of like, I've heard the song for two weeks already. Like that is pretty tough actually, because sometimes like we'll replace program drums with real drums and that, that could be really tough too, because it's so precise, you know, fake drums. And then when you, and then when you get the real drums in there, you get this different swagger. Um, 
sometimes it's easy for me because some of the fake stuff that we're replacing, I don't like it at all. So once we get the real stuff, I, I'm, I'm much happier than I get sort of re-inspired to mix. Um, so usually I don't get too frustrated by the updating of, of the sounds. And honestly, we do it. I do it so much now where I have to pre-mix like almost an entire score sometimes before we've recorded the strings and the brass and, and the drums and stuff like that. So I have to like mix uh, sometimes an entire score completely over again. And, uh, that is, um, that is, that is tough sometimes to get inspired to do that because you sort of feel like you've already done it. Um, but usually it sounds so much better that it's worth the time and the effort the and the effort to to do it so i don't get too hung up on it but yeah it's uh it is it is definitely it's an interesting point i didn't even really think about it because we do mix this stuff in layers a lot like you usually like if you know if you're mixing an album it's done it's not like they're going to send you a bunch of stuff in another week or two it's like you're you're mixing it and it's done but with score stuff we do do it quite a bit in layers especially these days just because the schedules are are so strange where they're going to need it like exactly by a certain day but you need so much time a certain amount of time to mix it but your but your orchestra is only recording 2 days before you have to deliver so you have to you have to do whatever you can in the meantime because otherwise you're not going to get it done so so pre-mixing is a big part of of the job it's like uh and sometimes with certain sounds like it's all electronic so there's really not even much that changes actually when you add the recorded elements sometimes the recorded elements are so minimal that it doesn't even really change much and 90 percent of it's already done um one thing i i will say too is that with hybrid sort of like modern film scoring with like hybrid stuff that's got a lot of electronic elements and a lot of driving synths and driving drums you know the orchestra is not is not the priority you know it is an element and a part of it but it's it's not um it's not the focus and when i first started out doing orchestral recording and mixing i i got very excited by the orchestra and was like so just blown away by how good it sounded i was often pushing it too loud and making it too loud in the mix which by <clears throat> by more recent standards you know this is like orchestra really kind of sits at, at in the same plane as everything else a lot of the time these days you know the drums and the synthesizers are a big part often of the sound of the score and the orchestra is 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 a working element but it isn't it isn't something you're going to just now suddenly change the whole focus and make it all about the orchestra because you can't you can't do that and you know it's a lot more like a you know a, a rhythm element than it is a featured element a lot of the times these days so you get a lot of work done in the pre-mix i think because because there is so much to do and i guess in a way there's that's a good thing that we don't have to wait till the end to get 90% of it done. You know, it's really only 10 to 15% of it. And that's obviously where really optimizing your systems at your studio 
really like th- that's that's the moment where everything shines right where it's like you've got that tight deadline and you've already you're ahead of the curve because you've made those efficiencies in your process so you know that that makes sense Awesome, dude. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time because I know you got a mix that you got to do. So um, if people wanted to learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? My website uh, should still be there. Uh, it's jasonlarocca.com, uh, J-A-S-O-N-L-A-R-O-C-C-A.com. And that has, yeah, uh, you could reach out to me there. Uh, you could see pictures of my studio there, uh, read a little bit about me there. And, uh, and then it takes you to, uh, my Twitter and actually I don't have Twitter, but it takes you to Instagram and, uh, Facebook as well. Awesome. Cool. And lastly, are there any cool projects that you can talk about that you're working on? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, actually, um, Morbius I can talk about, uh, that's coming out. I mean, it was actually supposed to come out last year, (laughs) but it's coming out in January of next year. And, uh, that's, um, that's a really exciting project for me. Uh, I produced uh, the score uh, with the composer on that one and uh, recorded and mixed on that as well. And, uh, and it's, and it's a really good film. So uh, I'm pretty excited to actually see it in its final, final play. Amazing. Well, I can't wait to check it out, man. Awesome. Well, Jason, thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your day to do this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate being here. So that was my interview with Jason LaRocca, and that was a really, really interesting conversation. I loved getting the insight as to what goes on behind the scenes of making music for film and television. And I think that the way Jason works is really impressive. Like he's obviously optimized his systems to work fast, work smart. I love the fact that he's got his double setup with the two rooms. Because in that kind of environment, having been there myself, it can be very stressful when you're on tight timelines and having only one studio to do everything in can definitely throw a wrench in things. So I think that he's optimized his systems in a, in a great way. And the fact that he can turn around these large mixes in a couple of days sometimes is really, really impressive. So yeah, that was a really interesting conversation. I really appreciated it. And uh, I know that there's a lot of you guys listening who are interested in working in film and television. So definitely suggest that you look up Jason's work because he's done a lot of amazing projects. So I think you'll really enjoy the work that he does. So Jason, if you're listening to this, thanks again for being on the Master Mix Podcast. Really appreciate that. And for you, the listener, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, make sure to subscribe to it so that you get all the new episodes each week as they're released. And we're going to try to stick to a schedule of every Wednesday, we're going to release new episodes. So definitely make sure to subscribe to it so that you can get all of the new episodes as they are released. And if you haven't yet, make sure to check out MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I help musicians with home studios create professional recordings from their home without needing needing a ton of expensive gear or without needing fancy acoustic treatment. And on that website, I've got a lot of blog articles, videos, freebies, a whole bunch of downloadable stuff to help you with getting a lot more clarity on what you need to do in your mixes to make them sound polished and pro. And while you're there, definitely make sure to check out my book, The Mixing Mindset. Inside, I show you a step-by-step process for creating pro sounding mixes from your home studio. And uh, you can get that on the website, masteryourmix.com. So that is today's episode, guys. Thank you so much for listening to the very end, and I'll talk to you in the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com. Thanks for listening.